I'd say we definitely ran into some challenges fundraising. There's this kind of narrative around black and brown exceptionalism. And I think that's what we really faced here, right? Where it's like, it's not enough to be average. We have to be freaking exceptional. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Samir Goel, the CEO and co-founder of Isusu, a fast-growing social enterprise that bridges the racial wealth gap and increases financial access for low to middle-income consumers. Isusu recently raised funding led by Acumen and Jeff Wiener's Nextplay Ventures. In this episode, we speak with Samir about the challenges raising money as a person of color, how his parents felt about him leaving a stable tech job for entrepreneurship, and why growing up in New York has shaped his perspective on his Indian American identity. Samir, excited for you to be on the Across the Lines podcast. I think the way we usually start our podcast is by asking our guests what their favorite dish was growing up. It could be really anything, but curious what that was for you. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And thanks, Angie, for having me on. Really excited to be here with both of you. You know, this might surprise some people, but my favorite dish growing up was um, pancakes at IHOP specifically. And the reason for that was my parents immigrated here from India and we didn't really do breakfast foods. That was just like not a thing. We didn't do like omelets or pancakes. And so that was always this thing that I really wanted. And so on my birthday as a kid, I'd actually ask my parents to take me to IHOP. For like a regular dish I, I enjoyed, it'd be like very standard Indian like paranta, which is just like a, essentially a grilled bread type of situation. So how, how many times did you go there for your birthday? for to IHOP? Was it, was it a recurring thing or was it just a special occasion? No, this is like five or six birthdays. And actually even in my like adult life, there are times where like my partner, Julie has taken me to IHOP on one of my birthdays. And I've had friends that take me there on my birthday too. Well, you can't pass on the, uh, the amazing original IHOP pancakes. They're like the OG pancakes. So definitely exactly. the gold standard of, of breakfast foods out there. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I was like, IHOP is a great quality meal. Like this place is second to none. Like I was, <laughs> with IHOP. Still yeah, especially IHOP. the sets. You know, you get your pancakes, get the sausages, yeah. perfect package. <laughs> it might just be a volume-based food kind of thing too, though, because I always loved Olive Garden too. You know, I remember <laughs> the free breadsticks. Oh, get yeah. those breadsticks. <laughs> oh, yeah. You mentioned that you didn't typically eat breakfast foods as part of your family culture. What were some of the, the foods that you guys typically did eat for breakfast? What were some of your favorites? And more so, zooming back a bit, tell us a bit about what your upbringing looked like and maybe some of the stories that are associated around that food. Interestingly, my regular breakfast was literally a cup of warm milk with some sort of like chocolate powder mixed in, which there would be like Bonvita or something like that. And it's actually really funny because everyone in America drinks cold milk. And I'd never drank cold milk until I was like 16 years old. I was like, what is this thing that people do? Because my family always just had this culture of warm milk. And even when I was sick, it'd be like, okay, warm milk with turmeric. So that was actually my go-to breakfast food. And then sometimes it'd be some toast or something, which I think is, is pretty common. But as far as my upbringing and household goes, I think, you know, I grew up in a, in a very 
immigrant household. So a lot of my upbringing was just kind of watching my parents and then myself also kind of adapt into society in America. But I think like, honestly, as a, as a child, I was kind of like a cross-cultural kid. So kind of trying to figure out where I fit in. My parents worked incredibly hard and I'm very fortunate to have parents who just like literally banged out 18 hour days throughout my childhood. I think I'm, I'm fortunate to have two examples of people who kind of uh, put everything on the line so that I could have some of the opportunities that I've had. And that's definitely something that's been in inculcated in me. I think like as a kid, it'd be more of like, I don't want to be doing this or I don't want to work that hard and I want to just go have fun. Like I saw a lot of my kind of other more American friends doing, but as an adult, I think those things are very internalized, right? Like I don't think of myself as the smartest person in the room, but I know that I can outwork anyone. And like, that's what I can always lean on. I'm like, I might not know this, but I know I'll work at it and work at it until I figure it out. And it sounds like you had an upbringing where you're kind of a, a cross-cultural kid, I think, to use the lingo that, that you just used a bit ago. I'm assuming that means you didn't grow up in an area where you saw a lot of people who are similar to you or had similar cultural backgrounds. What was that like? Like, did you feel a strong need to assimilate? When did you kind of find your Indian American heritage and identity? Tell us a bit about that journey. So I definitely did not grow up in, a, in an area where a lot of folks looked like me. And to be honest, I don't really think I knew what that meant as a kid, right? I just think that I felt this need to fit in, but like always felt like I didn't. What I'd bring to school for lunch would be like dal and rice, which is lentils and rice, and it would smell and it would be yellow and no one knew what that was. And I, for some reason, like felt embarrassed by that, right? Because everyone else had like a slice of pizza or Italian dunkers or whatever, you know, whatever else there was. Lunchables, um, and, can't forget the Lunchables. Yeah, Lunchables. <laughs> um, and then I, like, also my family is vegetarian, right? People didn't even know what vegetarianism is. I think it's funny. It's so prevalent now. But growing up, it was like we had to really select where you could find that sort of thing. And I use that as a small example of these kind of like cultural microaggressions that honestly, I didn't really know what it meant until I could look back and reflect and be like, wow, I think I really did feel out of place, didn't know where I fit in. And as a result, I don't think I really came into my own or really felt confident in who I was and what I wanted to do with my life and time. Not that I have all the answers now, but more so until I was able to move to New York City and be in that more kind of metropolitan, culturally diverse environment. And New York City to me feels like home. I feel like I can be anywhere in New York City and find my way no matter what in a way that I never could in like Schenectady, New York, where I grew up because I just didn't feel like I fully fit in, but I wasn't able to put like a label on that until, until after the fact. Mm -hmm. That's I think how a lot of people generally, and including myself, have gone through this transition of thinking about at least my own culture. It never necessarily was top of mind growing up, but then only recently have I started to actually put words on what was happening and like, oh, like that may have been a microaggression there. That may have been some like weird cultural appropriation here. Like it, it's like creating the vocabulary on our experience. That's something that I've gone through a lot, specifically over the past few years and, and looking back at my life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny, like what people knew about Indian culture was <laughs> a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily true, but it was like, okay, you worship cows, you have dots on your head, and you're probably related to a terrorist, especially after 9-11. So like, that was basically the context that people kind of looked at me with. And you, I mean, like, you can't really put, a, <laughs> put words on what that means at the time. But, you know, I think it's also a testament to the fact that I think this country has grown and evolved and gotten more accepting of multiple cultures and different identities that I, I don't feel that nearly as much as I did kind of growing up. 
I actually wanted to just follow up on one of the points you mentioned about after 9-11. So my, my, my parents and my family were in uh, the United States as well as that was happening. They had been trying to become citizens of the country and it just became increasingly difficult to be able to do that. It was already difficult. It became a little bit more difficult after 9-11. It's become even more difficult, <laughs> arguably right now. <laughs> I'm wondering what that was like after 9-11 for your family and, and being someone who is a brown-skinned man and an Indian man and, and how, that, how that kind of started to impact you or your family or, or if it even did. So it's interesting because I don't think my parents felt the effects of it in the same way that I did. My parents came from India, didn't grow up in America. So I think they didn't have expectations to fit in or belong. They were just willing to put their heads down and work. And they come from a generation where like, that stuff, it just, it doesn't really matter. You just put your heads down and work. But as someone who was born in Schenectady, right, and who grew up in America, I think like I had a different set of expectations. Like this is home. Why don't I feel like I fit in in the place that I grew up in? That was actually a key difference where even post 9-11, I, I know my mom and dad had certain experiences and stuff that came up, but I think it kind of brushed off them in a way that it didn't necessarily brush off me because of that difference in expectations. But 9-11, I remember really vividly because I think it was the only time in my life I saw my dad cry. And so I just remember that very vividly. And following that, he actually started doing more work with the U.S. State Department in anti-terrorism and stuff like that. And so I, I'm really proud of that. But I think for me, it was, I, I remember like little things that I, I think the ways that my parents were thinking about things that changed. Like, for example, when I was 14, I could grow a beard like the one I have now. And my mom would freak out. She'd be like, you need to shave that beard. They're going to think you're a terrorist. And I was like, what are you talking about? But that's like a problem. Or like my mom would be like, oh, don't spend too much time in the sun. Your skin will get darker. Right. And those are just like internalized things that like are problematic, especially as we think about things like colorism. And I, I think it was just interesting. I, I, I didn't really understand at the time, but now looking back, I'm like, wow, this is, this is really significant. Thanks so much for sharing that, Samir. And juxtaposing your experience growing up in the suburb where you were one of the only people of your background, you know, and feeling like you didn't really belong and fit in and comparing that to now your experience in Manhattan, one of the first times you felt like you were truly at home. Tell us about that difference in feeling. What, what's that like? So New York, I, will, I, I say, and I will always say, is the best city in the world. I have so much love for New York City as a place, and it's probably because that's the city that I kind of grew up in in certain ways, became who I am more so today. I think there's two things that happened in New York. I think one, to the point you're making, there's just like so much more cultural identity, right? And there was so much more than essentially like white or not white, right? There's like nuance, there's been cultures, they have Curry Hill, they have Little India, but then they have also all the other kind of ethnicities and cultural groups that I actually find that I share a lot of similarities with and interests with and kind of shared experiences with. And so that was really possible. But I think the biggest thing that New York and Manhattan taught me was how big the world is in the sense of like how great the opportunities is. I'll give you an example. I, I, went, I came to New York because I was going to school at NYU. I spent my summers working as a landscaper, just need to make a few bucks here and there, have some pocket cash, like did stuff like that. And my first day of college, I'll never forget, I met this this girl named Emma. And she was like, what did you do last summer? And I was like, well, you know, I landscaped, listened to the radio, watched some Mets games. That's really all I did. And she's like, oh, cool. Well, I got a grant to go study climate change on Mount Kilimanjaro. And I was just like, what? Like, that is possible? And I think like New York just kind of exposed like the playing field to me of like, what is possible, right? And I think where I grew up didn't really have those same level of possibilities. And that was a really empowering thing, especially then being in that multicultural environment.
Mm, I love that. Seeing the opportunity around you just is, inspires you to also think that you can do something similar yourself. Uh, Angie and I on this podcast, that is specifically what we're trying to do is, is showcase leaders and people that are out there in their professional life doing all these amazing things and trying to showcase to our listeners that, hey, there's people that look like you, there's people that are around you or like were you at some point in time that are out there doing all these amazing things. And because you can see that, you then believe that opportunity for yourself. That's a, it's a fundamental belief. I know for myself, you mentioned, you mentioned really briefly about in, in college being a landscaper and like trying to hustle for, for a couple of bucks, like in, in, in your summers. I'm, I'm kind of curious to start to tune into a little bit of your, the beginning of your entrepreneurial background. So I didn't start a landscaping company, but it was more like, who are people in the neighborhood that I could help out? Even if it was like my parents, if it was a friend's parents, like whatever, like, where could I do things like mulch, plant a tree, like help build a patio, like all of those sort of things where I was like, all right, I can just be outdoors, get some exercise and make some money. I think my parents were still on that path of you should be an engineer or a doctor. So they're like, why don't you go learn it, learn like CSS or HTML? And I was like, I don't really want to do that. But funnily enough, in, in college, I got pretty creative with how I made money. Um, so I literally just tried to do everything. Like I would be a tutor for this program called America Reads. And then they, I, they have these things where PhD students need volunteers for kind of their research projects. And I would sign up for everyone. It'd be like, somebody needs to like stick a piece of metal in you to test like what it does. I was like, sign me up 50 bucks. Like here I am. And then some would be like more tame where it'd be like economic stuff or it'd be like, do this game theory thing and whatever I could to like get those like quick pockets of change. That's always a thing. So I think I always had that love in terms of being enterprising, figuring out ways to make money and kind of optimizing for that. I, like you, also did a ton of those experiments in college. I love them. Like, all right, half an hour, 10 bucks. That's great. Yeah. But where do you think this desire to hustle for the change and get the few extra bucks, where did that come from? I think part of it was born from necessity, right? Where it was just like, nobody was paying for my entire college education. Like my parents were able to support me um, with the equivalent of a, of a state education, which at a, at a university like NYU didn't cover it. But I didn't really want education or the ability to pay for education to be the barrier that held me back. And so I took out a lot of student debt, which I'm still paying off and, and basically needed to find ways to make money just for my day to day. And so I think it was really driven by necessity, but then I realized I also enjoy that kind of grind a little bit. Like I do love the process of figuring out how to make things work, how to kind of make money, how to create a business, or even if it's just like the business of me living my day to day life. So how did that start to materialize into some of the structured projects that you started to build, the, the startups that you started to build. We'd love to hear um, about uh, some of those early projects and, and kind of like what, where that led to. Yeah, it's funny because when I went to school, as I mentioned, my parents were really keen on this doctor engineer thing. I wasn't really interested in that, but my dream was to go work at the United Nations. And I thought that would be the way that I could have an impact in the world. And so that's kind of what I had started out to do as an international relations major. I actually got a contract at the UN while still in school and started working there. And I just realized, like, I was like, bureaucracy is not where I want to be. And that led me to kind of run in the opposite direction. And that's where I kind of stumbled into startups. Uh, and I ended up building a company called Transformation that basically worked with events in New York City to redistribute extra food to shelters and soup kitchens, but then made money by essentially helping corporations reduce their waste costs. And at that time, I literally knew nothing about creating a company, but I fell in love with doing that. The fact that every day looked a little bit different, that there was no bureaucracy, that you were figuring things out and kind of that ability to think bigger and dream bigger as to like what could be, I really enjoyed that. And I think what was meaningful about Transformation is it kind of taught me how to bet on myself. 
it gave me that muscle of like, I know I can do it. I can, I have conviction in myself and I know that I can figure things out and build something great in the world because I didn't really have that in my upbringing. I think a lot of kids kind of get told, follow your dreams. And my upbringing was much more like get a job, keep your heads down, be secure. Right. And I think both of you can probably empathize with that. And so I think transformation was the experience where I was like, no, I can bet on myself. I can take this risk. I can really push for more. Samira, as someone who finances his own education, didn't seem to grow up with a ton of resources and generational wealth. You know, your parents were, it must've been tough to make that leap to take on a lot of risk, right? On top of these narratives from your parents around, we want you to pursue these stable careers and having a very divergent dream from the dream that your parents have for you and for themselves as well. Tell us about that. How did you navigate all that? Yeah, I think it's funny because I kind of needed to strike out on my own and kind of like demonstrate my own path for my parents and I to kind of like reconnect around it, if that makes sense. And I think one of the things that made me feel empowered was, and I'm actually very grateful that my parents didn't necessarily pay for most of my education because that made me feel like, cool, I'm not depending on someone for this. And so I don't have to follow those kind of wishes or desires. And it's gonna sound a little bad, but I just kind of treated my parents like a BCC on an email where I'd just be like, cool, so you know, I'm gonna go do this thing. I'm gonna go work at LinkedIn now. Now I'm gonna move to Ireland, FYI. Oh, now I'm quitting LinkedIn to go build a startup. See you, see you at Christmas or you know, whatever. <laughs> um, which, which wasn't necessarily the right thing to do, but I think I kind of needed to kind of create my own sense of self and identity and process. And I also didn't wanna have to have that dialogue with my parents every time. And since I wasn't reliant on them financially and my parents have four other kids to look after, they had their hands full. And I think that actually kind of ended up working out really well because my parents and I redefined our relationship from kind of like son parents to like more of a peer level, which I really value and has been really a beautiful thing in my life now. And I think interestingly, like my parents have changed and evolved a lot, right? Like when I was growing up, my parents were so new to the country, they really were immigrants, but now they've assimilated, they understand American culture and society. And I think they respect the path that I've taken because they've watched me do it. and they kind of appreciate that. And they're like, you know, it's not what we would have suggested you do or the risks that we would have taken, but like, we do respect that. And, you know, I think I've earned their trust in that way, which has been powerful. It's a, it's a really interesting concept of going from a place where our parents are wanting you to do X, Y, Z projects or things or career paths, and then building early trust and having them believe that you can actually go succeed at whatever you want to do. It's almost like it's almost like you're like you're on a probationary period for 18, 19, 20, maybe longer years of your life of like, I don't even know if my kid knows what they're what they're doing. <laughs> Put a lot of pressure on them to make sure that they can live up to the expectation that I have for them. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about being at LinkedIn and specifically at LinkedIn, starting to work on another company, doing it at the same time and and kind of what was that internal talk track to feel confident enough to just take the jump away from a really nice job to go into actually running your own company. And what, and what is Isusu? LinkedIn was honestly has been so great to me. I'm very fortunate to have been able to work at a company like LinkedIn, where I felt like I could really see what excellence looks like at scale. Cause as a startup entrepreneur, you learn a lot about how to do something with nothing, but you don't learn as much about what happens as you scale. What does it good look like at a larger organization? And I got to learn a lot of that at LinkedIn. And more importantly, I got to meet incredible folks like UJ and 
others that I've been able to work with at LinkedIn that continue to inspire me and challenge me to be a better version of myself. I actually started working on Asusu before I started working at LinkedIn. And so those things were kind of concurrent. And one of the things I appreciated about LinkedIn was they were so open to people working on their passions. And the leadership team at LinkedIn kind of took the approach of tours of duty, the Reed Hoffman tour of duty and wanting people to kind of discover themselves. And rather than kind of hindering their employees from pursuing what it is that they want to do, how do we kind of enable that? And then maybe actually be an investor, maybe actually support in other ways. And that's something that I think is really unique at LinkedIn that also helped me because for example, my co-founder Abby was working at PwC, right? And he didn't necessarily have that luxury of kind of being able to be as open and honest about those sort of things. Like at, at like a standard firm, you're expected to be very, very focused. I think like kind of lowered the edge, but then I think I got to the point where I was helping build sales strategy and operations for Europe, the Middle East and Africa on LinkedIn marketing solutions. I think I got to this point where I realized like I could continue on this path and continue being promoted and grow to be like an executive and whatever, but that didn't really mean anything to me. What really excited me was the opportunity to build something that could give back to the communities like the one that I came from. And when it came down to it, I got to this stage where my LinkedIn work and what I was building with Asusu kind of both became too big to do them at the same time. And either one, or if I tried to do that, they would both fail. And so to me, it really just came down to regrets. And I was like, look, if I try to do this Asusu thing, then it fails. That'll suck, but it'll be okay. But if I never try, I know I'm going to regret that for the rest of my life. That'll be the thing at 80 years old that I'll look back and I'll be like, I wish I had done that. And so that made it pretty easy. And I think the barriers were, uh, Angie, some of the things that you've talked about, right? Like not necessarily having a family nest egg, having a lot of student debt and those things. But in my mind, like fundamentally, something like education should not be the shackle that holds someone back from doing what it is that they want to do. And so I just kind of figured out a way to be scrappy quit LinkedIn, couch surf for months, figured out all these sort of hacks and stuff that we might be able to get into later, but just found a way to make it happen. And Asusu is really a platform where we partner with landlords to do three things. First is help landlords understand their risk and their portfolio better. But more importantly, we help renters that are making on-time rent payments report those data points in the credit bureaus to build and establish credit. And this is important because debt and credit is the path to success in America. This country is built on cheap debt and home ownership is the biggest driver of wealth. And as a renter, you don't get access to those opportunities and renters are disproportionately immigrants, minorities, black and brown folks, and low income people, right? And those people are being fundamentally left behind. And then third and more recently during the pandemic, when a renter is unable to make their rent, we're able to pair them with an ethical zero to 10% interest loan that's paid to the landlord. So the renter doesn't have to worry about being evicted, but the landlord can also keep their, their cash flow healthy. And so that's what we do at Asusu. We cover over a million rental units across the United States of America, just you know, on this, on this kind of great growth path. How was the dialogue with your parents throughout all this? Quitting your job and going to do your own thing. There's a high level of risk associated with that, especially in their eyes, I'm sure. But how was the conversation with them throughout all this? And did you still keep them on BCC or is it more of a, a CC or two line conversation? And then secondly, I would love to hear the origin story for Asusu. You know, it seems like there's a lot of connections here between the background you came from and the problems that you're really trying to solve. Tell us more about the impetus for this idea. So I'll, I'll start with question one. My parents, I think when I made that decision to leave LinkedIn and do this full time, that was definitely more of a BCC type of thing where... I don't think I could get them on board with leaving a stable job to go build a startup. Why don't you just keep doing it on the side? And like, it's all the internet. But I think over time that dialogue has shifted because I think they've kind of watched me earn my stripes. And in a, in a similar way, like my parents are very enterprising, right? Just the risks that they took are 
trans like crossing the continent multiple continents to come to america with nothing versus me like leaving a job to start a company so i think it's just they they understand it it's just defined differently in, in my generation for me versus what it was for them but those first 18 you know 20 months of building a susu like i wasn't really getting paid right i was couch surfing, living off credit cards, figuring all that out. And then we turned the corner, right? And we raised funding and now we have marquee investors and I'm, we're building a team and we're, we're kind of growing as a firm. And I think my parents have gotten to watch that journey. And so over time, they've kind of gotten more excited about entrepreneurship. My mom now subscribes to Business Insider and is like, I was just reading about Sundar Pichai. Like, oh my God, there's so many Indians here. And so it's just been funny because I think my parents have kind of gone on the journey with me. And over time, I think, I've grown to appreciate and value everything that my parents did for me to even have the opportunity to do something like build a company. And so I've really wanted to invest in rekindling those relationships and also being really present in my siblings' lives. And so I think now they're, they're supportive and they understand and they're kind of excited about entrepreneurship in general and, and what we're building, which is, which is really actually, it means a lot because I think for a long time, my parents didn't really understand what I was doing and why. You know, it's funny, both, both Abby and I, Abby is my co-founder, have experiences of financial marginalization that have really inspired us to do what we do. And it really actually comes down to my parents' story, right? My, my dad moved here from New Delhi, India with like 500 bucks in his pocket. And on his first day, he was mugged. He, he thought he had a place for shelter. He didn't have a place for shelter, didn't understand the credit system, you know, had a working understanding of English. And so much of my childhood was just watching my parents work miracles so that I could have some of those opportunities. And the thought that I was left with was it really shouldn't be so hard for people who work hard every day of their lives to have a fighting chance. And that's just not my parents' experience. That's so many immigrants, that's so many minorities, that's so many people of color in general. And so for Abby and I, our core ethos at Asusu is no matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it shouldn't determine where you end up in life. And that's what we really stand for and fight for every day. That's a beautiful narrative and it's beautiful because it comes so deep from your personal story, which we've been, we've been chatting about for the past little bit. And it's so interesting to see how there's such a direct connection between that background and then what you're building. I'm personally curious about what it's been like raising money and, and, and getting people around you for this project, being a person of color and also your, your co-founder and yourself are both people of color. I'm wondering if, you, if you've run into any interesting stories or difficulties or maybe even benefits coming from this background. This could be its own podcast. So I'll, I'll do my best to be a little succinct here, but I'd say we definitely ran into some challenges fundraising, right? You hear the narrative where some white dude in a hoodie drops out of whatever college and raises millions of dollars working on a stealth idea. And that to me is so the polar opposite of our experience that it's not even funny. There's this kind of narrative around black and brown exceptionalism. And I think that's what we really faced here, right? Where it's like, it's not enough to be average. We have to be freaking exceptional to have the same shots that are given to people who are kind of just half-assing things. Um, but to give, but I think going beyond that, I think there's really two things that surfaced from our fundraise that was really palatable. One is VCs operate on what they call mental models, patterns of success that they see. And VCs hadn't seen founders who look like us solving the type of problems that we're trying to solve before. And so something there didn't click, right? And I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's necessarily like they're like trying to be racist or something. I just think that that's the way that VCs operate and we don't fit that mold. So there's a lot of kind of friction that was there. And then the second thing is I think there's a lack of proximity to the problem because we would have VCs who'd be like, so who cares if someone's credit score 
goes up 50, 60 points, does that actually matter? And I'm like, that's the difference between getting an apartment and not getting an apartment. That's a difference between being a homeowner and not refinancing student loans, getting a job. But you've never experienced those things. And also your ecosystem is lawyers and bankers and consultants who don't have those problems. And so it's hard to get people on board with a problem set that they may or may not understand given their background. And that's not a dig on them. That's just the reality, right? We're more acutely aware of problems that we've faced or experienced. And so that was one of the things that we noticed where despite the fact that, you know, 150 million Americans have less than $400 in their bank account, the people who have the capital don't understand or relate to those sets of problems. And so for Abby and I, we talked to over 300 VCs on our first round of financing. We had an Excel spreadsheet. We had a list of people. We had warm intros, you know, classic LinkedIn sales style. We had our kind of cold outreach templates and Abby used to work in mergers and acquisitions. So we would have a data room like M&A style. It had every single due diligence document required. We'd do our homework on the VCs and we just went in there and with like, we're gonna bring our A game to every single conversation. And it was tough. It just took a long time. Not a lot of people wanted to take a bet on us. That being said, you also asked about the benefits. And I think the benefit was that eventually through all those no's, we found the right investors. People that were honored to be on this journey with us and that have really it's more meaningful that those people have taken a bet on us because of how many people didn't take a bet on us. We even had a situation where we kind of put together a round of financing and then our lead investor had to back out because they spent through the fund. We had to start from ground zero on that fundraising journey, which sucked. But then after that, we actually found our longer term lead investor, which was Acumen Fund. And Acumen Fund has been a pioneer in impact investing for decades, right? Like before it was even a buzzword, they were doing this work. And so it's been really powerful to bring in people who are really aligned with what we're trying to do in the world. And it's been cool because we also have a capital stack that's a blend of traditional venture, really focused on the economic opportunity, but then also impact. Um, so that keeps us in alignment where we won't necessarily be in that place where we need to essentially compromise our values for profits. I'll just say this last thing. Now, after our second financing, 70% of our cap table is actually women-led or minority-led VCs. And that doesn't really happen, but that makes me excited because when we win, right, our employer base who has a lot of people of color, our investors who are a lot of female-led and BIPOC-led firms, they will get those benefits and that's how we build an ecosystem of success. And I hope that those people will continue to bet on founders like Abby and I, and I hope those early employees at Asusu will then go start their own venture funds or build their own companies. And that way we can really try to do something here uh, in terms of reversing some of these trends. That was so powerful. I feel just so amped up from hearing you say all that, Samira. So thank you so much for sharing that story. I think the one thing that I took away from that that really hits home is this idea of breaking out of traditional mental models that general society has around certain groups of people, whether that's through ASUSU, whether that's in VC, breaking out of the, the mental model of what success can and should look like and broadening opportunity. I think that's so important. And I love that that's a, a focal point of your work and your entrepreneurial journey. Jay and I like to ask this final closing question to all our guests as oh a parting piece of advice. <laughs> what's something that you feel like is the best thing that you've done for yourself through your career journey? What would that be for you? Actually, if I, if I can, I'd say, Three, three things. The first is really invest in people, right? I think I've never gone wrong by investing in people. And one of my core beliefs is nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. Number two, I'd say is have a plan. It doesn't need to be perfect, but like have a why, like have a hypothesis of where you want to go. Always be looking towards something and you'll figure out where you eventually want to go, but don't be overwhelmed by too many choices. Like 
pick a path and kind of see where that leads you. And then the third, I think that's just overlooked is like, take care of yourself. Like one of the best things I ever did was get on top of health and fitness, like actually go run, like work out, like keep my body and mind healthy and sharp. And I think every single successful person has some sort of crazy workout routine. And I, and I see why. And I think that's something that's overlooked a lot, especially in the founder entrepreneurial ecosystem. Samir, we could keep talking for hours, but thank you so much for, for coming on and talking about your personal life and your professional journey. It was fantastic to have you on, man. Thanks so much, Jay. And thanks so much, Angie. Such a pleasure to be here with you both. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Bye.